You know how some Pentecostals say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience? Yeah. And they're right in the sense that we should experience things after being regenerated. Like, you can't just become regenerated, born again, as we would say, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then not experience Christ or not experience the Holy Spirit in a powerful way where you actually have feelings and emotions and experiences and the feeling of power, right? Yeah, never. So that, that should be part of it. But the way we define the baptism and even the second experience or the third experience or the fourth, all the experiences of the Holy Spirit should be contextualized in the Bible and should not be like the actual regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which we would consider the baptism of the Holy Spirit should not be like over overlooked. Anyways, welcome to Reforming Slavics. Um, today, Tom is going to be uh, breaking down the Holy Spirit's baptism and I'm going to be chiming in and hanging out here. So... We're going to start with, essentially, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or um, yeah. what Scripture says about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so like seven times in the New Testament, uh, you know, it's referred to someone being baptized, or with the Holy Spirit, specifically. Like, kind of those terms. I mean, you could point to examples of it, but in those examples in Acts, where people would point to, you know, it doesn't specifically say those terms. Yeah, like, baptismal, right, is, is the word that is used in order to be immersed, immersed in. Yeah, but submerged in. Yeah, with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, pneuma. Uh, Acts says filled, like essentially an experience that can be hearkened to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. And so, like, yeah, first you have like four times in the Gospels, uh, so seven times total, and four times in the Gospels, it's talking about John the Baptist, right? And he's, you know, he's talking about I will baptize you in water. For example, the Mark. Uh, I mean, Matthew 3.11, it says, I will baptize you in water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I will, I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And some people even break break apart the baptism with the water, Holy Spirit, and then fire. People say that those are three different experiences, and people equivocate those in a, in a hierarchy, meaning yeah. uh, the first time you are baptized with water and then you're baptized with the holy spirit and later on um some people say the baptism of the holy uh, of, of sorry a fire is the experience in which you experience uh, uh trials ex- well some people yeah trials some people would say trials yeah I, yeah and, and it, would, it would be like it's in a it's in a you know like todd white for example would say it's it's a trials and pers- like what are they called persecutions or like persevering through those trials so you could become sanctified kind of like what jesus experienced through the desert hearkening back to what peter writes um you are being purified through a furnace to test your faith that eventually produces pure gold yeah i don't see anything wrong with saying like you can be purified through fire but the problem i have is when people say uh the baptism of fire yeah because some people say and then and then refer exactly to this verse uh, yeah but some people th- there is a different take that people have aren't isn't there that people say baptism of fire is a special unique experience that you have in which uh, you may you know go and uh, have this ornate vision or you have some kind of you know physical reaction and they would say well that's the baptism of, the Holy, uh, of fire yeah I, I would kind of like link those together like well, maybe like some people would say 
those are kind of linked. So do you think, for example, I don't know. fire tunnels, right? Like people, people create those in uh, very charismatic churches and people run through them. And they experience something. Um, I, I mean, orthodoxy or people who the majority average Christian would say, well, we should experience tribulation and trials. And that could be defined as being baptized with fire. Right. And then some Christians would say, well, isn't there a unique super spiritual experience that can have in this particular context? Yeah. I mean, with, I just have a problem with people quoting like Matthew, you know, three eleven and saying, he will baptize you in Holy Spirit and fire. And that Holy Spirit, that baptism of fire is specifically something that we as Christians must experience. Because when you read the context, you don't want to be, as a Christian, you don't want to be baptized with fire. Why, why is that? Because it says, literally the next verse, that he has a winnowing fork in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gather the wheat into the barn, and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So, in other words, the experience of baptism of fire that, that particular tra- passage re- is referring to his judgment in hellfire. Yeah, like literally, Jesus is coming back to cleanse the earth with fire. So do you think a lot of people uh, mismatch the context and therefore misinterpret the passages because of lack of context? Like people pull out the word baptism a lot of times or one experience and de- develop an entire theology, not cross-referencing Paul and Jesus and Luke and Acts. Yeah, I think it's just like, you listen, I don't know, it's not like they make it up on their own, because almost everyone's theology is somehow derived from something they heard from maybe their parents, or from a preacher, it's almost like this theology never comes up like brand new. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. But anyway, um, that was baptism of fire we talked about. Um. Right, so four times uh, talks about like through the through the gospels. It's almost saying the exact same thing, where it's just John the Baptist and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just John the Baptist saying Jesus will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And some it doesn't say with fire. And then two and then two times in Acts it also says to uh, uh, it refers to. Uh, it pretty much refers to Pentecost, right? Acts one five it says John baptized with water, but m- uh, before many days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and that's Jesus speaking. Now prior to Jesus ascending into heaven, yeah, the Holy Spirit is not He, the third person of the Trinity, is not present with the believers in the same way that He is after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So there is a unique, just like. The incarnation of Christ was a unique experience that the world had never experienced before, right? We have hearkenings back in the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord or um, Joshua running into the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah, so you're saying the Old Testament Christians still had an experience of baptism, well, or the, not an experience, they had experience of the Holy Spirit. The pre, so the Old Testament Christians had an experience of even Christ, right? Some people, like the, the Christophanies. A Christophany is simply a um, appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, and uh, Daniel runs into some of those things. Um, Joshua runs into a man. Um, Abraham runs into a, a person who is not really an angel, and he's kind of 
God, right? And if you read through those Old Testament passages, you get confused. And so Jesus Christ comes in as incarnate. It's it's an actual event in history. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ is born, he dies on the cross in any sense. And so the event of the Holy Spirit coming down as the pers- third person of the Trinity in a unique way to indwell Christians is a isn't it a once upon once kind of event one event in history that kind of doesn't need to be repeated. Yeah. And is that what Jesus Christ is talking about? That's kind of my whole point is. Yeah, like all the references pretty much where it talks about baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's either referring to when it's going to happen or it's referring to like when it did happen. Because uh, the only other time is uh, Acts 11 where it's Peter quoting Jesus' words. Like, remember, I remember the words that the Lord said, how he said he will, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then the only one other time, uh, which we can focus on for a little bit, is 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. This is a Paul letter to the Corinthians. It says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So this passage, I think, states that through this passage that it states that the Holy Spirit introduces you into the body of Christ when you're going through one spirit. So a couple of questions then. Were the disciples true believers prior to Pentecost? Yeah. Did the Holy Spirit indwell the disciples in the way that he did after Pentecost? No, not the same way. So, again, going back to Pentecost, uh, there was a unique indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the disciples experienced being filled with power. So, the experience of becoming a born-again Christian is slightly different for those after Pentecost than prior to. What do you mean? In other words, the disciples were not if you use biblical technical terms, we're not filled with the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost. Right? Yeah, they were not baptized with the Holy Spirit. But when we are, we become born again believers, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, if you, if you take to the First Corinthians passage. So the... it says you were baptized into one body. So the... Through one spirit. The and I guess what I view it as is the foundation of the church, like the day, the, the marking foundational beginning of the church in the New Testament, yeah, happened when the Holy Spirit indwelt mm-hmm. the 120 believers in the upper room, and then the very next moment, the church is, is accumulating thousands of believers, right, through the preaching of um, Peter's yeah. sermon. Yeah, do you want to talk about? So some Pentecostals will use like, you know, this day of Pentecost, like Acts 19, you know, to say that Christians, they need a second experience. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Yeah. So in Acts 19, where it's, um, let me pull it up. But pretty much there's people, if I'm remembering correctly, that these people, they knew uh, about the baptism of John, but they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Yes, um, 
the the there are people in I don't recall the city, but they run across and they were asked, you know, what do you guys know? Cor- Corinth. Corinth, right? They they run across and what do you guys know about this Jesus? Wait, like, wait, wait. Were you sure? Because I thought. And it, let me listen. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through inland country and came to Ephesus. Oh wait, never mind. So it was Ephesus. It says that Apollos was at Corinth and then Paul went to Ephesus. So people of if Eph- Eph- Ephesians. And so. Yeah. They only heard of John's baptism. So technically, they did not recognize or did not even hear of the gospel, which entails the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and Christ fulfilling Christ fulfilling the promise of actually taking the wrath of God upon himself and redeeming people, right? They didn't hear that message, and therefore they were not true believers. They didn't believe in Christ because they did not know about him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, because they only heard of John's baptism, they'd even heard of the one who was to come. Because um, that's what Paul says in the verse 4. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after me, that is Jesus. So they even heard about Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, and so obviously they are introduced into the Christian church through repentance, saving faith, and baptism in the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you, you, I like the way you phrased a second experience. Because, okay, can you can you break down, <laughs> before we head over, um, what do traditional Pentecostal, Russian and Ukrainian, Slavic churches believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Just if you, if you take like a quick overview. Um... Yeah, so I don't want to like exactly misrepresent. Not just a very like if you if you were gonna explain it to someone who wasn't aware of the movement, because yeah, misrepresenting would be bad. Well, I'll just say the way I was raised in the in the church was that uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit was something that would happen to you after you already believed that Jesus, you know, was the Lord, that you were already Christian, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit would be an experience that God would want to give you to empower your life and to help you have, uh, for you to experience speaking in tongues as well. So the motivation to be baptized in the Holy Spirit was primarily pushed in order to receive the gift of the speaking in tongues. Yeah, and that would that would increase your prayer life, that would increase your intimacy with god maybe help you gifts get some more gifts or get the gifts of the holy spirit so the initiation into um the spiritual life in a pentecostal church in the sense where you are filled with power was through a particular event where you received um you, the terminology would be used as a second blessing right yeah. there was a second encounter in which you Primarily on the day of Pentecost, gathered in a room, prayed with people, and um, I'm not going to go into the different techniques techniques that go into it, but you know, um, that's another conversation. But essentially, you received the gift of tongues, and yeah. that was the would you say the evidence of you being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, and then that was the initiation for 
prophecy, visions, interpretation of tongues, possible healing. Yeah. The, the list of charismatic gifts, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is the view of the Pentecostal church. Now, as you mentioned, that contradicts the First um, Corinthians twelve thirteen verse because there are people who say that, well, I don't speak in tongues, but Paul says in order to be part of the body, to be baptized into the body of Christ, I have to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So there's a correlation in the First Corinthians in that you're baptized in the Spirit, and that makes you... Part of the body, part of the which body. makes you fundamentally a Christian. You can't be part of the body unless you are a follower of Christ, right? You yeah. have to be Christian in order to be part of the body of Christ. Yeah, and Pentecost, uh, tradition, some traditional Pentecostals would point to these places in Acts, you know, like Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19, you know, where like Samaritans, you know, the apostles come. They, they, they're, they're already believing the Samaritans in Acts 8. But then the holy the apostles come and lay their hands on them, and they start speaking in tongues, and they receive the Holy Spirit. So, that would be another question that was raised. What does it mean by them receiving the Holy Spirit? You mean the Samaritans? Mm-hmm. Because there's an encounter there, right? Yeah. And in particular, the encounter where the Samaritans are believers, mm-hmm. but they haven't yet participated in the filling of the Holy Spirit. So are they experiencing the same thing that the apostles did? On that time when the apostles, he's talking about like the day of Pentecost? Yes. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. And if if if, if the Pentecostal case is true, let, let's premise this. What what's the difference between someone who is baptized in the Holy Spirit in the Pentecostal sense where it's a second blessing and the person who has not experienced that second blessing? What's the difference? Yeah. Like uh, are there tears? Um, from their point of view they would say no. But I think I think there would be some kind of it almost seemed like there is some kind of distinction. Like there's two different types of Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like the, this is not the first time that this, I think has happened through the church, uh, kind of like the Roman Catholic system has, uh, doesn't have like saints, priests, and then like just normal Christians. The lady. Well, yeah. So, um, the lady are the people who gather and participate in mass and they're kind of normal everyday people. The priests are altar Christos. Which mean that's a James White term, right? Uh, or the Catholics use it. Um, they are another Christ. They actually can conjure up the physical um, representation in the body and the blood in the Mass. Meaning, when a priest prays over, this is kind of going off track, but it's important. When a priest prays over the sacraments, right? The blood, which is the cup of wine and the bread. Mm-hmm. Once the priest prays over it, he fundamentally changes the nature of those elements. And now Christ is physically present in those elements. That's the Mass, right? And then you have um, saints. Now, in order to reach saint status, 
there are specific criteria after each one. You have to have a proven miracle that you have performed during your lifetime. You have to have completed X amount of things. Um, there, there is. You have to donate a certain amount to the church. Well, plus or minus, right? <laughs> and and um, there is there's a huge criteria in which the Catholic Church has to affirm, right? And so there are categorical differences between a saint because they can they have access excess uh, righteousness that they can impart to you yeah. through indulgences. And that's why the Catholics pray to the saints because they are, they have the capability to impart more righteousness to the Catholic who is in need of it, yeah. not to stay in purgatory. Anyways, that's a long conversation. But going back to... My the, point my point was just to not to run with the analogy to the point of saying they're like Catholics, but to just say that it can possibly make distinctions that are not supposed to be there. In daily practice, there... It, like if you go to if you go to a Pentecostal church, a church that believes that you must receive the second blessing, um, even if the theology lines up, there is a feeling in everyday practice that there is a difference between you who does not pray in tongues and the person who does. And you can't run out of feelings, but it is fundamentally in the practice that you have not achieved something that you must achieve, and the. the moment upon which you are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is a level of yeah. maturity and power that you receive. Now, we were, at the very beginning, we were talking about, I like how, I, I like the Pentecostal movement in the sense that they expect a second experience. I don't like, I disagree with the terminology of it being the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with going and trying to experience more of God's feeling. Yeah, shouldn't you have a second and third and fourth and fifth, right? And it's not as though it's an everyday thing, but there is, there are points in which God pours out power in order yeah. to do his work. Yeah, you should experience the continual feeling of the Holy Spirit, um, but not, I wouldn't say the term bap- multiple baptisms, because according to 1 Corinthians we are all baptized into one body. And I guess that's where you run into the definition. What does it mean to be baptized in the Holy Spirit according yeah. to what we've read in Scripture? Because, you know, like, in Ephesians, it talks about you should be, like, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's like a command to be filled with the Spirit. Um, it's like throughout the, the letters, Paul commands us to... Um, in the Greek, you know, it's almost like to be continually filled with the Spirit. So the Puritans, even, uh, I, I like the definitions that the Puritans use. I like the definition that Paul Washer uses and John Piper, which did kind of alienate John Piper from the, oh geez, how long ago was it? 2012 conference that uh, John MacArthur put on with the... Um, Strange Fire? Strange Fire Conference. I for, Yeah, I split out. Uh, was that? It was a while back, but essentially it was it was re- it was um, solidifying the reformed position in the United States of those who di- were cessationists and fundamentally disagreed with um, you know the filling of the Holy Spirit in the way Pentecostals viewed it. And John Piper and a lot of Puritans and even Martin Lloyd Jones would view it as a necessary and part empowerments of the Holy Spirit in times of unique stress or prayer or ministry. In other words, you actually experience a supernatural feeling like you feel God's power 
in moments where you need to. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I would agree. I wouldn't call it baptism of the Holy Spirit, but I would call it a filling of the Holy Spirit that is necessary in order to accomplish certain things in ministry. And um, a lot of Reformed people would kind of stay away from that because it seems too experiential. Mm-hmm. But Christianity is meant to be experienced, right? Of course. So I would kind of, I, I like the fact that there is an element in which you must pursue God in order to experience Him and feel the power that is necessary for ministry, discipleship, and unique circumstances. Yeah. Like a Paul, you know, Paul standing before the Sanhedrin, Acts 4 8, and it says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he says to them, this is like times when God will fill you with the Holy Spirit to do certain things or to maybe sanctify your life more or to get over some struggle through your life. Yeah. And what do you think about the objection that people will say, like, how can you be filled with the Holy Spirit if you already have the Spirit? Like, So there is... there is So I think we really have to break down the fundamentals in... Let me tell me if I'm explaining the reform position right, or our at least our position. When you come to salvific faith in Christ, um, the Holy Spirit indwells you, and that event can be termed as being born again, as being regenerated, as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Those are three different terms to explain one event. After that point, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He actually resides in you and you're a vessel. You're a temple for him. He empowers you to war against sin, to crucify it. He empowers you to speak to God the Father and to be crucified with Christ in the sense of you warring against sin. He empowers you to uh, live a life in which you can uh, effectively evangelize, effectively live a life that is representing Christ, and he empowers you to really be a Christian. Um, now, the Pentecostals would say, at the point of you being born again, because that terminology is the same, the Holy Spirit, you encounter the Holy Spirit, and that's where things get vague, Some would say that the Holy Spirit indwells you and that you can do almost all things until you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then once you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you can do ministry and you can perform miracles and you can speak in tongues. Some people say that um, he doesn't really indwell you at regeneration, but he's somehow present with you. And then upon your baptism that's when he actually indwells you yeah and that's where things get fishy because clearly in order to war against sin you have to have the indwelling of the holy spirit um in order to be born again he must come and change your heart yeah so i think the biblical position has to be taken in the sense that the holy spirit actually does indwell you upon regeneration and if you, whatever terminology you use, regeneration, being born again, or baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's the same event, just different terms. Yeah. Now, I will also agree with the Pentecostals that we must seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And not only on the day of Pentecost once a year, and it doesn't mean you will experience... Like, 
the difficulty people find with Pentecostalism is the expectation of an experience in which you feel catharsis. Yeah, Catharsis is simply a term in which you... There's a release of um, emotion and a feeling of euphoria, excitement, uh, uh, possible some kind of trance that's involved, right? There, there is an, a heightened states of dopamine and um, mm-hmm. all other chemicals in your brain. And it's not just naturalistic. And people say, well, that is the goal of the experience. Yeah. And like Reformed people should say like, I want to experience that in prayer or in preaching or in my discipleship. Like that should be a goal also, but that shouldn't be the thing you strive for in your daily life because that should be a very unique thing that can happen when God says it should happen, not when you work yourself into it. Yeah, because then what happens when you don't want to feel, well, if you feel like you don't want to pray. Then you're not going to pray. Or you don't feel like you want to abstain from sin. You don't rely on your feelings. You rely on the truth of God. And then you inform your feelings about the truth of God. You start preaching to yourself and you say, Oh, my soul, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Yeah, that's you, the you psal- speak to yourself. That's the psalmist informing his his soul that's downcast to praise the Lord. It's not the other way around where you try to muster up some feeling uh, and then you start, you know, praising God. No, you will praise God whether you feel sad, happy. But the amazing thing is when you, whatever happens, when you start praising God, then you start feeling thankful. You start feeling through through whatever feeling you're feeling. Yeah, and... There must be a standard upon which we can look at to determine terminology and what it means. Yeah. In regards to um, Christian practice, all that means is you have to be assured that the Holy Spirit actually lives in you. Because if he does not, or if he's some kind of, somehow hovering around, or like you are not a Christian, biblically speaking. And if you get into the mindset that well, until I am, I experience the second blessing in a powerful way where I start speaking in tongues, if that's the goal of the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit in your heart, that fundamentally destroys your assurance in the, the as Paul says, the seal that was put upon you, upon your faith and trust in yeah. Christ. You know what I, I feel like this happens to a lot of people and I've talked to believers who are in, uh, you know, more traditional Pentecostal churches that felt the exact same way I did. Um, three things, literally uh, three things will happen when you're in those prayers, you know, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit prayers. Like number one, you'll either be, uh, you'll be extremely discouraged because nothing happens to you, right? You'll come out of the prayer and you still never spoke in tongues and like, you feel like nothing happened to you. Or number two, something will actually happen. You'll feel some experience and you'll start pr- speaking in tongues and you'll be ecstatic uh, or you'll be like super happy. Or number three, through peer pressure, you'll fake speaking in tongues or you'll just repeat what someone else is saying and that that will cause you to, you know, feel like you've experienced something. And then you will start feeling unassured of yourself. And then you will start feeling the pressure of acting in the role 
in order to help and re- remain in the status of yeah. this t- tongue speaker. And then you'll start feeling resentment of yourself for living a lie, but still being really scared about the fact that, well, what does it all mean? And so that's why I dislike vague terms, uh, the the fog of no definitions in regards to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Because as soon as you start being vague about terms like that, you question the fundamental reality of, am I a Christian and does the Holy Spirit indwell me, right? Mm. That can, man, that, that can mess you up. That could really mess with your assurance of salvation. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the experiences that people actually have? You know, when we're, a lot of times people have those second, those second blessing experiences. Like or third I, or fourth or fifth. See, so what do you think happens? Like, do you think it's because what I, what I feel like happens is a lot of times, uh, like Wayne Grudem explains it well in his systematic theology is that what happens, like the preacher tells you to, or the person that at the prayer says, repent of your sins, you know, ask God for a new love for him, a new understanding of the Holy like experience, the Holy spirit. And what happens? God honors that usually, you know, even if, even if you don't, uh, speak in tongues people still experience that you know yeah and again there there has to be redefinition of terms or definition of terms when you speak about these things a what do you mean about baptism the holy spirit hey you mean one thing i mean one thing but fundamentally we we all agree that there's an event in which the holy spirit dwells you and two should we strive to be filled with the holy spirit when we feel where we feel goosebumps amen like why wouldn't you want to feel the presence of God emotionally and physically in your prayer life? Yeah. Through tears or through joy or through the speaking of Psalms. Um, do you want to be stoic in the way you praise God through hymns and Psalms at church? Or do you want to raise your hand? Like, no, like there is a vast array of emotions in which you could experience God, but you should strive to biblically experience the Holy Spirit in your life. And fundamentally, it breaks down to the fact that the Holy Spirit, he is the vicar of Christ, meaning he is the actual representation of God. He's the face of God upon this earth now. In the Old Testament, we had a image of the pre-incarnate Christ. And the Holy Spirit did not indwell people as he does now. In the yeah, New he Testament... Overed, he hovered the earth. Oh, well, that's pre, pre-creation, right? Um... But in the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who acts, right? We, we just read a whole bunch of stuff in Acts. A lot of people say it's actually really the acts of the Holy Spirit through the view of the apostles, mm-hmm. right? And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who acts upon the earth today. And he will act up until the point where yeah. Christ returns, the second person of the Trinity that's, returns. That's why Christ says... Hey, I'm leaving, and they're all the disciples. Are like, why are you leaving? Mm. And he's like, I will not leave you alone. I'm I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the Helper. Yeah, and so he is the fundamental vicar of, vicar of Christ, the representation, the, the viceroy of not the viceroy, the, the he's the third person of the Trinity who indwells us. And um, if we clearly define who he is and how to interact with him, you will experience him, mm-hmm. just like you know 
the disciples experience Christ. Yeah. It's interesting, like, uh, there's this one preacher talking about how he wanted to marry this one girl. Uh, and this is when he was still in the, you know, like, more traditional pre- Pentecostal circles. And the 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 people around him, you know, were asking, is there anyone in your life? It's like, yes, I want to start dating this girl. And the first question they would ask her is like, is she spirit-filled? Is she spirit-filled? And he's like, oh, come on, guys. Yes, she's spirit-filled. She, just because, you know, she doesn't speak in tongues, like, she's still spirit-filled. And so that's where, that's the only, like, problem, like, I feel like the categories that it yeah, creates. Yeah, second-tier Christians start existing really fast. Yeah. Um, one, one, since we're going anecdotal, one category, one thing I dislike about the assumption that the second blessing or the Pentecostal version of the Holy Spirit's baptism is that people cling on to that as though it is the primary function of sanctification in their life. And this is what, this is a story I will tell you. And this is what I mean by it. There are people who can focus on praying in tongues for an hour mm-hmm. and they pray in tongues because they've received the second blessing that pouring the Holy Spirit. And then that is the measure by which they determine if they're spiritual. But in their day-to-day life, they are cruel, they are mean, they gossip, right? They act as though they have not been changed through the hour of their prayer life. And that raises a question. If the Holy Spirit indwells you, like the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit here on earth is to do what? Jesus says it. To sanctify them. But Je- yes, but Jesus Jesus says, I will leave when the Holy Spirit will come and he will do these three things. Warn you of hell and judgment, yeah. tell you of the truth, and condemn you of your sin. Right? Not, convict you. Convict you, sorry. <laughs> um, if you're well, an unbeliever, it will Again, my, my paraphrase is wrong, but we could pull it up. I believe it's in John. And the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of your sin and then, like you said, sanctify you of it. And so we should measure our Christian lives not by the experience of emotion, but the ability to control our emotion when we interact with people. The the fruit of the Spirit in which Paul speaks of should be much higher standard than the experience of, you know, any experience which, which has, which has, you know, as self control as as the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, and and you know, like thankfulness. Are are you grateful? Grateful people don't gossip. Grateful people are not proud because they're grateful to someone for all their gifts, all their all the grace they got. And so that's kind of the difficulty, the rub I have sometimes with people who claim to be spiritual in the aspect of speaking tongues or receiving the second blessing, and yet fundamentally don't have self control or don't have uh, you know, kindness and goodness in their heart and the way they interact with people or they're cruel or they are liars. And, and every time you encounter someone and you challenge them on those sins, well, I pray every, you know, X amount of time or, or I participate in these fillings of the Holy Spirit. Well, your emotions should bear fruit and the fruit is actual measurable through the fruit of the Spirit and the fundamental principle, are you sinning or are you not, right? Yeah. And I think um, whatever way you look at 
with the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, I think we could all agree that we should be filled in the Holy Spirit. Yes, and amen. <laughs> and so, yeah, I want to challenge everyone listening, and including me, like, dude, spend spend more time with God and actually ask to be filled in the Holy Spirit. Like, strive to be filled in such a way, like Nick was saying, that it starts changing your life through confession of sin and then being filled with a desire to, hey, I'm going to, you know, tell people more about the gospel. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to love my, my parents. Yeah, th- there is there is a fundamental change that occurs to people who actually have the filling of the Holy Spirit. And um, just, just one more caveat. I do think that there are extraordinary circumstances in which you experience God in extraordinary ways. Um, but that is for God to decide, not for you. And so God will pour out his spirit. God God could stop the sun in the middle of the sky if he chooses so. That yeah. does not mean he will do that for you every single day. And in fact, he's only done it once in the entire history of humanity for Joshua, right? God will not God can and does raise people from the dead. That does not mean he does it every day. And the fundamental principle there is he gives it in the way you need it. I I, I would describe the filling of the Holy Spirit as um, um, John Bunyan describes it in Pilgrim's Progress, in which um, Christian at times finds rest and assurance along his journey. And he gets power to do extraordinary things when all hope seems lost. Mm-hmm. And God pours out you know, enormous amounts of grace throughout his journey to the celestial kingdom. And finally, he has to, you know, pass through the river of death and end up in the celestial kingdom. But um, there are points at which he gets sweet, gra- sweet grace and rest. At points, where he gets strength to overcome um, the giant despair. Again, if, if you're not, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, go read Pilgrim's Progress or listen to the audiobook by Jen Bonyan. I think it's the second most published, published book in book. all of history. Yes, right after here. the Bible. Yeah. It's an, an, and if you are a really big nerd, you can go listen to The Holy War by John Bunyan. It is a second book. Almost no one knows about it. Beside the point, um, God does pour out his grace. So don't, you know, don't expect God to leave you behind and say, well, I'm going to live a stoic life. At the same time, catharsis and um, emotional crying and powerful um, goosebumps do not give you the power to be nice and kind to the, or love your enemy, right? It's the Holy Spirit through practice and self-discipline and sanctification that does that. Yeah. I hope you're having an experience to, like what it says here, I want to lead with this, uh, or leave off with this verse, where it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And here's the result. Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the reference reverence for Christ, being filled with the Spirit, as it says, it's going to make you thankful. Yeah, the Paul knew what he was what he was doing when he wrote about the gifts of the Spirit. I and hope the so. Fruit of the Spirit. And then tying it in and being baptized into one body. Yeah. Right. All all that happens to be Paul's purpose in addressing the church. 
I think that I think that summarizes it pretty well in regards to what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. I mean, if it doesn't, I then... people disagree, but I, I think that that at least starts the conversation or right? ends it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to edit that one out.